This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. As America barrels toward the 2022 midterm elections, polls have been indicating that Democrats could be in for some very bad news in November. Party strategists now are openly contemplating the likelihood of losing both the House and the Senate, which could lead to all sorts of other consequences. As many people know, the president's party has historically done worse in off-year elections, but it's worth considering the possibility that Democratic leaders are also rather responsible for the party's apparent predicament. The rules of American politics have favored small rural states since the country's beginning, and party leaders seem to have done little to counter Republican efforts to siphon away less educated voters using religious controversies. Do Democrats know what they're doing? It's a question that's worth asking. In this episode, I'm joined by Luke Savage. He's a writer for the socialist magazine Jacobin and the author of a new book, The Dead Center, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. Thanks for being here today, Luke. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of words in the title there, but I, and I want to discuss each aspect of that. So first of all, this is a, is a collection of, of writings that you've uh, done, or columns and articles for Jacobin uh, magazine over the years. And so, but your overall thesis, you're trying to organize it as a thematic sense, looking at a larger argument. And so, and then that focuses on the dead center. What do you mean by the dead center? Well, the dead center, I suppose, refers to a number of things, but broadly speaking, uh, the dead center is the political consensus that we've been living in globally, but especially in the West and even more especially in the kind of Anglo-American West. So in, in Britain and North America, I think quite acutely, it's the consensus we've been we've been stuck with since roughly the, the early 1990s, which was a very significant and, and formative period in global history. I think uh, in some ways, quite unique period in global history where liberals broadly defined, and also in European context, people who'd called themselves social democrats or, or even socialists, in many cases, essentially capitulated to, to the zeitgeist of the 1990s, to this kind of world of unfettered markets, hyper-financialization, deregulation, range of kind of means-tested social policies and things like that. And there's there's a lot of, a lot of different things we could discuss in relation to all of that. But I think as far as the the title and the theme of my book is concerned, the most important thing about that moment was that it really discarded a broad notion of progress, which people had held in one way or another, I mean, strongly at different uh, points in the 20th century, but really going back, running throughout the modern age, there's a, there were you know a variety of beliefs, broad currents of belief that the future could be something better than the present, qualitatively different and and transcendent of the problems and injustices found in the present. Something that's unique, I think, in many ways about the 1990s, which you know is, is contained in things like the phrase, the end of history, was the idea that this world we have now is, this is as far as it goes. We've reached, this is the end, this is the end of the rainbow. There's, there's, yeah. uh, there, there, there's well, nothing... There's nothing beyond or outside of this. And I think yeah. that even 
in a world, just to finish my thought here, even in a world where we've had th this consensus we live in has been disrupted and upset now many times by many different things. And yet we're still very much living in a sort of undead version of it. So that's the, that's the dead center in the kind of broad sense as, as construed in my book. Yeah. And for those who hadn't heard the phrase, like the end of history, it was the literal title of a book. And it was, it was basically that book uh, by this guy named Francis Fukuyama sort of became almost the, the Bible of the global emerging neoliberal corporatist consensus after it came out in the, in the early 1990s, after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And so, but it's weird though, that as much as that book was adopted wholesale by centrists, or you could call them conservatives, frankly, I think you should, that they people on the left didn't really respond to it as much, not nearly as much. And it just sort of took everything by storm in universities. I mean, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Or is that, I don't know if that's too far afield from your... Well, I th I do think it's relevant, actually. I mean, so I've been I've been in engaged with and involved in the political left in in one way or another since I was a teenager. And when I was a teenager in the early two thousands, the left really was very different from the left as it exists now. And I would argue that actually the left was was bludgeoned pretty hard neoliberal corporatism in the eighties and nineties, and not just the institutions of the left. So there were all kinds of obvious ways in that hap uh, that happened trade unions being battered and things like that, but also in a kind of deeper and, and in some ways more insidious kind of ideological sense. I think when I entered the, the political left, it was it was a pretty, pretty sad place, really. And it wasn't a place, I mean, people might still have talked, they might have referred to kind of horizons beyond the world we, we lived in, but I don't think most people really uh, believed in them. It really was about grappling with the world as it was and just trying to make it a little bit less inhumane and that kind of thing. In the past kind of five, six, seven years, there's been a really a quite inspiring attempt to push beyond that. And it's one of the reasons why the political left today is much more vibrant and, uh, and dynamic than I think it was 20 years ago. Yeah, well, and, and it was, I mean, ultimately, you had this idea that that set in that this is as good as it gets and that we, we can't expect more. We shouldn't expect more. And of course, but the problem is like, if that's the sentiment that is dominating the political left, well, then it's not actually on the political left. <laughs> that's a fundamentally conservative set because I mean, ultimately, I think the other thing is that people's political compasses got miscalibrated after the fall of the Soviet Union in that what was so conservatism of let's say the Edmund Burke type variety or English Canadian conservatism is actually kind of their their ballast if you will like their center of gravity is kind of a let's just keep things how they currently are we don't need to do other stuff we don't need to be reactionary. We don't need to be more socially democratic. Let's just keep things how they are. And so like that's a, in some cases, like a non-ideological, conservative, moderate type centrist attitude. And that attitude and people with those beliefs basically kind of 
took over the political left in a lot of countries in the United States. And, and then effectively the, what that meant is that it created this vast room for reaction on the, on the right and which did not really exist outside of the United States, I would say. And I mean, you're a Canadian though, you tell me. Well, I mean, we have our, yeah, we have our fair share of reactionaries up here as well. Although really the sort of new right in the nineties in Canada was, it was very heavily influenced by by the American right, yeah. so so it's one of one of America's many 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 exports. We weren't sending our best people. That's a paraphrase, Donald Trump. But yeah, so uh, at the same time, though, I, I I would say though that it is important. So a lot of Americans know or nothing about Canada really or Canadian politics, and and meanwhile, basically every Canadian follows American politics, and in many cases knows more about American politics than Americans. A lot of Americans. And so, but, but the thing is that it's important, I think, for Americans, especially if you're on the political left, to pay attention to the way that politics in other countries works, because the American political center is much further to the right compared to everybody else. And, and there's a lot of things that can be learned from that. Even the furthest, any, any right-wing party in UK or France, or I mean, you name it, Japan, like they're not going after those countries, universal healthcare solutions. They are just not. And, and it's interesting to, to think about why. And I mean, you, you, you want to, let's talk about that a bit. Sure. I mean, I think, I mean, I think Canada has, there are a lot of lessons that Canada has to teach, to teach liberals in the United States, a lot of lessons it teaches us about the modern kind of liberal affect in general, or the centrist one, if, if you, if you prefer. I mean, when it comes to something like universal healthcare, I mean, I think there's, you've, there was a tendency or there has been a tendency of, for Democrats in the United States to dismiss universal health care as uh, kind of an impossible dream, something like that, as something that is not uh, popular. We heard a lot where polling has never suggested, or to my knowledge, never suggested that universal health care polls very well, particularly among uh, Democrats. So that's one version of the argument you hear against it from American liberals, right? That it's kind of unfeasible, unpopular. There's also a second and I think more ideological argument, which is actually just that it's it's bad, right? During the Democratic primaries in 2020, a talking point you heard over and over again was that universal health care effectively meant taking away people's private plans, right? So it was actually a sort of active government theft, which is talking point really with with its roots on the on the right i mean if you go back and you listen to ronald reagan's famous screed against a socialized medicine that was released on vinyl i think by the american medical association um in in the 1960s it's very much very much what he says as well so canada is is an instructive case because as are i think other countries britain has built a kind of whole civic religion almost out of the national health service and as you said there's not a lot of appetite even on on the right to, to 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 privatize these systems. It's very difficult even for for politicians to make cuts to them, although of course they they do. I mean any any tax on universal health care typically have to happen sort of by by stealth. And one of the reasons for that is that universal health care is incredibly popular. People like the experience of it. When you create a universal program like universal health care, you're also, in effect, creating a large and, and highly motivated constituency that's going to defend that program, which is when you look at a lot of the social policy that's that's on offer from Democrats and has been for some time, but particularly since the 1990s, there's all this, there's an obsession with means testing, right? There's an obsession with not having universality, but with having these kind of piecemeal reforms that are supposed to be more targeted. And there are all kinds of other problems with those. I think 
generally speaking, except in a few cases, means testing is not a good way to make public policy. But politically, when you even when you do make you do pass means tested reforms, they're very easily undone because you don't have the same highly motivated constituency to defend them. So that's that's one thing. But there's another lesson about Canada that is the subject of an essay in my book. And I think this is probably the most interesting point about about Canada as as far as Americans are concerned anyway. In the United States, a refrain you will hear over and over again from Democrats is that the and liberals in general is that the 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 main obstacle to progressive reforms is opposition from the right. It's political gridlock. It's a, a political right that doesn't want to do business. The Republican Party doesn't want to help Democrats pass reforms. There are other arguments, some of which have a basis in in fact, like the fact that the America's political system is quite obstructive, but the, at the federal level, it's quite has a preference towards kind of minority power. Democrats often have tens of millions of more votes in the Senate than the GOP and will barely have a majority or in some cases will we'll have a minority. So all of those are real constraints. This is why Canada is very useful to look at, because in Canada, we have a Westminster parliamentary system modeled on the British version. You can win a you can win a majority government with as little as kind of 35 percent of the popular vote if the votes are distributed. I mean, it's a first past the post system. So if the votes are distributed geographically in the right way, you can win a pretty big majority. There are two chambers in Canada. There is a Senate. The Senate doesn't have a lot of legitimacy. It's an appointed chamber. And so basically, if you form a federal government in Canada, the constraints on passing progressive reforms are extremely minimal as compared to somewhere like the United States. In 2015, the Trudeau liberals came to power and they had an agenda, which I don't think a program, a platform that was, I think, quite overrated in some ways, but did have a lot of reforms that people found attractive and, and wanted to see happen. And for the most part, we, we, we didn't even really get those. But there's, and one other thing I forgot to mention is the campaign finance system in Canada, also much more tightly regulated. So if you pursue a an agenda that rubs the billionaire class or something the wrong way, it's very difficult for them to pour money into your your uh, opponents or something like that. So uh, again, the constraints for action on uh, a government in Canada are are much uh, are much lesser. And what we see again and again is that even when all kinds of things are popular, sweeping environment environmental reform is popular. Taxes on the rich are popular. Redistrib redistributive programs are popular. Extending Canadian healthcare to cover things it doesn't cover, like vision, dental, pharmaceutical, with these huge gaps in our system, which was you know, created decades ago, even when it would be popular for a self-described progressive government to do those things, they they don't by and large. And I think I think that's a really, a really important and, and obstructive because what it tells uh, instructive rather, because what it tells you is that by and large, a lot of the things that an institution like the Democratic Party is nominally committed to will will only they will only remain committed to those things provided that there's no chance of them actually being passed. And if there is a chance them being pa passed, you'll actually find them ideologically uh, opposed to them. And in fact, we don't even have to look at Canada to see evidence of that because there are something like 13 states, I may be getting the number wrong, where, that are solidly blue where Democrats have super majorities, and this is mostly not how they govern. I mean, Andrew Cuomo, in a solidly blue state, formed a special caucus so that he could pass Republican budgets in solidly blue New York. 
So there's uh, there are some wider lessons here, I think, about what self-described progressive liberals uh, are actually uh, committed to and what their own what their own beliefs and agenda actually is, as distinct from their yeah. rhetoric. Yeah, well, and, and it's important to note that for people, yeah, the people who are labeled as on the left, they're they actually want the system that presently exists. A lot of them do, especially at the at the highest levels. Like, and that's why. And and I guess another thing that you do talk about to that end, and this is more of an affliction in the United States, but like this idea of, of bipartisanship, that the notion that you have to do it, and and that's it seems to be fading away after the Republican Party, you know, got taken hostilely taken over by Donald Trump. But like that was for uh, the longest time the the rationale used as the excuse for, well, this is why we can't do things that people want. Well, because we have to have bipartisan support. Okay, well, now you don't have to. Well, now we have the filibuster. And, and it's like, yeah, and so your your point is very is, is a very good one. And But it does also, though, speak to the need for people who are on the political left to be doing more institutional building and doing more explaining of their ideas. So like, for instance, I, I heard from a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, like they would, so in other words, Americans support, they support some form of universal healthcare coverage in, in many cases, like actually support single payer. But at the same time, because people who are supporters of it don't explain it very well. So like you mentioned the idea of, well, this is going to take away your private insurance. Like it actually would do that, right? but you would get something better in exchange for that. So, but in, instead of trying to fashion policy ideas that sort of ramp up to it, in other words, make it opt in and get people to opt in and see how great it is, who can't afford it, and then gradually go in from there. And that's how you do it. People are like, no, we're just going to, I just want to have it immediately. I want to, I want to see who's on the record for this. And like, you don't gain anything by doing that. And I, I feel like, I mean, I think, I think. I think advocacy for universal health care, I think the, the 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 means to that advocacy, I think, can change depending on the context. So I think that during the during the, the Democratic primaries when Sanders was running for president, both both times, both in 2016 and 2020, I actually I mean, I think there was a lot of utility and it was very defensible for him to advocate the sort of maximalist position because he was doing it in I mean, he was doing it in in, in kind of deep moral terms. He was he was trying to advance not only a policy item, but also a deeper idea of healthcare that is removed from the market entirely, which as you said, is, is, or as you've alluded to, is I think an idea that's alien to a lot of Americans in particular, because if you've never experienced a decommodified version of something, it's very difficult to oh, it doesn't imagine it possible. Yeah. Right. And, and conversely, if you're, if you have experienced uh, a decommodified version of something like healthcare, the idea of like flashing your, a credit card at a doctor's office or something is very strange and, and, and very, uh, and very alien in terms of, I mean, in terms of how, how universal healthcare, how, how you actually get there and stuff like that. I mean, outside the context of a primary where you have this huge soapbox to do political education to kind of mount this argument. I mean, I think it gets much more difficult. I mean, advocating for it uh, in the present context is, is, is a little more difficult. And of course, yeah, it's not just a question of holding a vote to get people on record and, and see, see where the chips fall. I mean, up, up ahead of the 2020 Democratic primaries, there were lots of thoroughly centrist Democrats who support, I mean, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker are two that come to mind, who I think both co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare uh, for All bill, and neither of them 
when they actually were running for president offered offered anything like it because, well, because for for for, for various reasons but <laughs> but yeah so that's uh, that's my point so that's my that's my point there again and and I think for for that reason at least so much of the time it is actually a very good idea to kind of advocate for the putting the question aside of strategically speaking how you actually get in a in a how you get to something like socialized medicine in a, in a political climate as obstructive as the United States is I do think that advocating the sort of maximalist position probably does help create a it, it probably ha, it probably helps educate a lot of people about what's actually being what's actually being proposed and 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 also probably does to some degree help separate the a figure like Sanders who is believes quite fiercely in in the idea of, of universal uh, health care as a public good from others who who may kind of claim to support universality but but don't yeah well I guess the other thing is that you need people who are doing more than that. Like you need more than just a maximalist approach. You need like multiple people making multiple arguments to, because that will, each argument works for different people. So like, in other words, if you look at the American political right, you've got some people out there who are saying, well, we need to give corporate welfare to billionaires because they're the job creators. And you've got other people who make the argument, well, we need to do this because they are our moral betters, uh, and Ayn Rand is right about scum moochers. And then you've got other people that are like, well, no, we need to give the billionaires what they want because they will save us from the brown people coming to this country. And like, you, they've got this, this, a bunch of people all arguing for the same policies, but with different um, <laughs> angles. And in the political left in the United States, I just don't see that very much. And I feel like there should be. And instead, what you see, and, and you wrote about this um, in your book also, which it was one of my favorite columns in there about, you call it the, how liberals fell in love with the West Wing, the, the TV, the uh, former ABC TV show. And I, I, I've, it's funny because I hadn't, hadn't read it, that column before, but basically I call it Sorkin syndrome. This idea that, well, if you just give us good enough speech. If you just tell people the truth, then they'll come, then they'll come around and be persuaded, even though they hate you and everything you stand for. The bad guys can come through and turn it around. And it's like, no, they can't. And they won't. Yeah. I mean, the West Wing is in some ways it, it's, it's kind of, I'm like bashful about continuing to talk about it because uh, it really is. It really is strange to be talking about a television show that's been off the air since I think it's 2007. But when I when I wrote that that essay, which was uh, published in Current Affairs back in 2017 about the show, I think even then I underestimated the the influence of of the West Wing and and of Aaron Sorkin in general, but especially of that show. I mean, when you read the memoirs of former Obama White House staff who talk about how formative it was watching that show for them, it's clear that the West Wing is actually it's it's actually been some people's political education. I think actually Jen Psaki just referred to it in a press conference not that not that long ago. It has a huge international fandom. It's it's a it's a very popular show and it and it's a show which articulates a lot of the things that liberals particularly through the clinton and obama eras have 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 believed i mean it's a it's a theory of if you want a theory of political change without really any 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 change to it it's 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 a it's a style of or articulates a style of, of politics where you know as you said you have a you have a smart cerebral president president bartlett he has a nobel prize in economics so he's a former governor of new hampshire he's really smart he's really handsome and he you know, he gets up there and he gives these incredible 
speeches and and uh, the speeches kind of bring people together. They transcend cultural and and political divides. But you know, if you look closely at that show, it's pretty striking. I mean, it is it is in some ways the most unconstrained liberal fantasy of politics that you could imagine. And they don't change American society in any significant way at all. In fact, when they do have quote unquote achievements, they're things like cutting social security and things like that, which they do in a bipartisan way in a sort of backroom back room setting in an episode that was supposed to be an example of like nobility, triumph, political nobility and honor triumphing over partisanship or something. And so, yeah, the show, the show, I think, really captured something that reached its its kind of peak during the uh, the Obama era, which was this, yeah, this celebration of bipartisanship, this kind of liberalism without 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 an, a transformative agenda of its own of any kind. So a liberalism without any kind of a great society or new deal or or some kind of political imagination capable of accommodating capable of accommodating those things and yeah there are these great speeches but they're not really they're not really there's they're speeches that are not i suppose to go back to what you're saying they are maximalist in a sense in that they are the they are the epitome of what the the a liberal audience craves but they're not maximalist in an ideological sense i mean they're not you don't you don't see Pre- president bartlett doesn't advocate for universal health care you know, he doesn't take kind of these hard and fast positions like healthcare is a right, not a privilege. And neither, you know, neither did Obama. You know, Obama was not, was not a fan of those kinds of things. He, he, he saw, uh, he saw that way of thinking as I think quite dogmatic in some ways. And, uh, and of course, I don't think he doesn't believe in universality and something like healthcare anyway, but the, so the, I could talk about the West Wing for uh, forever and ever, but in, in so many ways, I think it, it really, it it really is the ultimate kind of Rosetta Stone for decoding, kind of a whole host of of the the, the ways in which American liberals, in particular, have, have increasingly thought about politics and also their role within it. Yeah, well, and I, I, I yeah, I'd say you you add the West Wing plus Francis Fukuyama plus <laughs> that out of context quote from Martin Luther King about the moral arc of the universe bends right, inevitably right. toward justice. Like That's right. basically you've got this idea that, well, we're all going to have equality and, and nice things someday, but it will just happen on its own. Like, and like, and you saw that in terms of even their political strategy uh, during the Obama year. So there was this book that came out uh, that was called, called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And that book, the, the actual book itself said that as non-religious people increase as Hispanics and Asians increase, if the Democrats can continue to hold on to their existing coalition by continuing to serve it, then they will become a majority party. But right. it's like the entire Democratic liberal commentariat and the Democratic political class took off the first part of the book, which which was, well, you have this current constituency and you have to continue serving them. Like that was... <laughs> was literally one of the most integral pieces of the book and they just sort of lopped it off and it's like oh look we don't have to do anything we're going to win isn't that going to be magical and you had all these ridiculous articles to that i mean i remember back in 2008 the triumphalism about basically a, a generation of of democratic hegemony not just in Congress, but sort of ideologically as well. I remember shortly after Obama's election reading an article, I don't remember which newspaper, it was a major newspaper, 
about how from now on the Republicans were going to have to operate within a sort of liberal, a, a new liberal consensus. So they were going to have to, for example, drop their opposition to the science of climate change and instead advocate market solutions to climate change, that kind of thing. So there was this kind of whole triumphalism about a new consensus. And I mean, in 2010, the, the Republicans won a huge landslide in the House of Representatives. I mean, the Democrats did not use their supermajority to, you know, which was a quite fleeting one, 60 votes in the Senate and, and a majority in the House and a hugely popular president. They, you know, very consciously, I think, did not wield that moment as, as a tool to transform the financial system in particular, to transform the economy. I mean, they, they might have tried to do something like what FDR did in the 1930s, where they took kind of aim squarely at the at the consensus that had produced this this calamity that was liquidating Americans' bank accounts and savings and and mortgages and things like that. But they might have used uh, they might have used it as an opportunity to do all kinds of things. And uh, yeah, they really didn't want to. And there are a variety of reasons for that. But uh, the obsession with bipartisanship was uh, was certainly one of them. They felt that it was somehow more legitimate in a way. And Biden, who was vice president in those days, I think was a big part of this. It felt that it was more legitimate in some ways to have legislation passed with Republican support, which is a really fascinating sentiment. And when you would, you don't, I don't think really find an analog to it on the right. Even, even to this day, you have figures like Nancy Pelosi saying America needs a strong Republican party and things like that. There's a, there's a fetish here. And you, this goes back to the West Wing again for an idea of sort of intra elite cooperation as a, as an end in itself and as something that is inherently good. So you have one side of the American political spectrum, which almost thinks about the, the country as a sort of ecosystem. And it thinks about it, its own role as kind of maintaining that ecosystem and kind of dealing respectively, respectively with the with interlocutors on the other side. Republicans patently do not think that way. And uh, despite the fact that Republicanism and conservatism in many cases really is a minority proposition in the United States, they've been able to be quite effective in advancing an agenda by really being quite fiercely ideological. And in many ways, the liberalism's kind of refusal to do the same, and it's kind of retreat from a politics which is able to really accommodate opposition at all, or kind of the idea of a, a political struggle towards an agenda. That's a big part of the story, I think, for, for why the Republican right has been on the march and why it's also continued to enjoy political victories and politi political successes, even as in some ways its demands and and its its own kind of internal culture have just grown more and more removed from kind of the way a majority of Americans think and feel. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, and you have a entire section of the book where you are talking about the media and just how they continue to get things wrong. I mean, I mean, like the idea of I mean, you just, in, in terms of like what you were talking about, in, you know, inter-elite cooperation, like that's what politics should be. The corporate media, for instance, never talks about the worker perspective in different conflicts. So like you never see, almost never see conflicts or coverage of worker strikes. I mean, like in, in the United States, we're, we're this we've had more strikes in the past a couple of years than we've had in decades in this country. And yet that story is basically never talked about, even in ostensibly liberal media outlets. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to check check the data on on strikes. I think there's been a number of very high profile strikes. I'm not sure how it compares to uh, to recent years, but certainly the unions are much more visible and strikes are much more visible uh, than they've been. And they're also more popular than they've been. I think it was uh, Gallup had a poll just last year that found support for unions at something like 65%, which I think was the highest recorded since the early 1970s, something like that, or maybe it was the early 1980s. But certainly extremely high levels of support, even as union density continues to decline. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to the labor beat and kind of coverage of labor issues, I mean, the labor beat used to be a standard feature of of newspapers. And so in the book, there's a review I wrote of a really, really good book, someone else's book, which is about the, it's called No Longer Newsworthy. And it's about kind of the erasure of the working class from the US media. And it's interesting. There are all kinds of reasons why, you know, obvious reasons why working class issues and labor issues have not been as visible over the past 30 years. I mean, obviously, Reagan famously attacked the the air traffic controllers, and there was a kind of big turn of political power against against trade unions and and working class politics in general. But what's so interesting about this book, which is by a professor called Christopher Martin, is he he also traces the kind of there are structural reasons for for why we don't read about labor issues in in the media, and a lot of it has to do with the way that the U.S. media's and the media in general is really transformed. So it used to be the case newspapers funded themselves in a big way through subscriptions, through just people going to newsstands and, and buying buying newspapers. So just newspapers going into ordinary people's hands. And if you're trying to get as many newspapers out to people as you can, if you're trying to sell any product, really, you want to make the appeal of the product as broad as possible. And because huge numbers of Americans are, are working class or, or middle class, the, 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 the beats of a lot of reporting, it, it, it reflected that, that re- it really, uh, really came through. And uh, among other things, that's the reason why labor reporting used to be a much more kind of standard beat. Then a number of things happened. I mean, the cable news really took off. And then in the 90s, with courtesy of Roger Ailes and others, partisan media really took off. So people discovered that you could actually make a lot, of, you could have a profitable media venture not by targeting a broad audience, but by but by targeting individual ideological niches and then kind of stoking those niches as much as as much as you as much as you could. And furthermore, newspapers also in many cases reoriented themselves. So they they started making a lot more money through 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 ads. And in their own way, they adopted a kind of niche uh, market strategy where, for example, there's a there's a a friend of mine who used to be on the editorial board of a major newspaper here in Canada as kind of a, a token lefty. And uh, he told me there that the the explicit business strategy when he was there was that the newspaper was not really interested in readers who made less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, which is not is not a lot of people tar- targeting the top few percentage percentiles of income there really. And yet you can have a profitable media venture and you just run ads that are for things of concern, and you and you, and you run content that 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 is of concern. To people in those uh, in those demographics, and a lot of people in those demographics are managers, they're owners of businesses, things like that. And so, again, the content reflects that coverage that might have once been about labor issues or the workplace becomes about here's how to manage your unruly workers. So it becomes about HR. It becomes a problem like to that. solve. Yeah, exactly. And so Christopher Martin, the author of the book, talks about once workers were appeared in in kind of the the US media as kind of subjects right and as and as kind of autonomous people as members of the community and increasingly they became kind of hailed as as passive objects i think is the phrase he uses so they're they're people who are only kind of seen through the prism of management and, and things like that so that's a very truncated kind of history i suppose of the 
realignment of the U.S. Uh, media and of, and of the, the the media in in general. But you can see how these these changes just really the business model of, of newspapers and cable news and things like that can really have a massive impact in the actual news people are reading and in the things it chooses to cover and not cover and also in how it covers those things when it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then also the news outlets originally, and, and this was true, this is true across the, the globe, that news outlets tended to be more locally owned and operated, locally financed uh, by the readers and by the local advertisers. But then as they became conglomeratized into these national and international behemoths, the the companies themselves just because of who they had to please who their 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 financial backers were that in the beginning it was the people predominantly that were paying the nickel for the newspaper or whatever and so that was who the content was for and that's what it was made for but then as their overwhelmingly over, overwhelming concern was about well I have to please my investors so I have to I have to get keep the share price up I have to continue to make profits. I mean, like this whole idea, you must always be increasing your profit margin. Like it's a completely destructive notion and is very bad for business in the long term. The businesses that have that mentality and, and, and they're in, in the United States now effectively required to have this mentality if they're a public company, like this is destructive to your company in the long term. You cannot exist with the with a a sane and stable set of values if that's what your overriding concern is you like i mean you so many companies whether it's ibm like it literally sold off has become a totally different company than it, what it once was and, and and lots of companies that have managed to somehow survive over the decades like they're a shell of their former selves they don't really are not nearly as influential as they once were and and they've lost all kinds of revenue and, and are not are not the icons that they originally wanted to be and were and and like even in the case of like facebook sorry that like the the large tech companies now that exist the the highest value companies that exist now internationally their workforces are like one one hundredth of the size of the companies that used to exist at the top of the food chain. Yeah, and that's certainly true of the uh, the media as well, where there you have there used to be many more jobs for just beat reporters and things like that, and it's a lot harder to work in the media than than it used to. I mean, just a further example, further to what you were just saying, there's a very good documentary. This is not in the book, but it's it's relevant to the discussion. There's a a very good documentary on Netflix about about Boeing right now, which it appears when you when you look at it, it it looks like okay, it's a documentary about these these very high profile crashes that happen recently. And of course, it is about these crashes, which uh, were the result of the pilots not having been trained or even informed in this new system that was being installed, this kind of new navigation system whereby the plane would actually kind of adjust itself automatically in response because in response to readings it was getting from a single sensor. So pilots flying these planes, even if they were very experienced, were not informed that this, this system even existed. And so you had these crashes that killed hundreds of people. But the reason the documentary is so good is because it actually traces this back to the Reagan era and to the, all the kind of corporate mergers that happened, to the broader climate of kind of financialization, a kind of zeal for yeah public companies to constantly expand their profit margins. And as a result of all of those things, all kinds of things about the company changed. It's, it's HQ relocated to a different city so that it could be more removed from 
the engineers who were inherently conservative and, and, and kind of wanted to, were very risk averse. They didn't want to make planes that were going to kill people and that had problems and things like that. But in this absolute, in this kind of relentless zeal for profit, all kinds of, all kinds of things go out the window, all kinds of kind of testing and just trade. Well, we have a new system here. Uh, if we have to train all these pilots, that'll be really expensive. So let's just not, we won't even tell them that this new system even, even exists. So there's a clear through line there from the Reagan era and kind of the whole culture about profitability of all, above all else and things like that and, and, and having minimal regulation and, and letting the markets rip and all of that. There's a clear, a clear line from that all the way up to these, these horrific and completely avoidable crashes. Yeah. Well, and one of the... I guess, sort of counter trends to, to all this consolidation and um, upward redistribution of, of content ideas and ownership has that there has been an, an emergence of an explicitly socialist media ecosystem in the past, I don't know, we'll say seven years, roughly. And of course, there were socialist publications and magazines. And I mean, you had Democracy Now!, which was socialist. And so, I mean, these things existed, but they didn't have a huge audience and and it, i'd say there's still there's a there's a lot of room to grow in that in that respect in terms of audience and awareness but it now now there's something that, that exists and you you dedicated your book to michael brooks who was a youtuber and, and friend of yours and one of the early socialist advocates on as as the web 2.0 i hate using that phrase started emerging but you know he before he died though he wrote a book which i think it was very, it was an important book, but he died before he could really publicize it and it sort of just faded away. But you wrote about it uh, right after it came out and didn't fit within the context of, of your anthology here. But I think it's, it's, it's worth talking about what he was talking about. So the, the book was, and, and I never got to know him. So unfortunately, uh, I can't really say anything about it. But, I, you know, the book basically is looking at the so-called intellectual dark web. And it's a it's an important part of our ecosystem in the media now because basically it's it's a way that it's just the latest way that the 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 right has sort of packaged itself as oh we'll see we're transgressive too we're we're against the fuddy duddies we're anti-establishment and like this was this was something like I, I found that there was this great hilarious New York Times article that I read in, in the 1990s. And it, it was right after, it was right when Laura Ingram was first coming on the national political scene. And she and this other woman were wearing leopard print skirts. Uh, and it was the cover story of the New York Times magazine. And basically, and it was just long article about, yeah, see, we're not like these old conservatives. We, we like to have sex because of course no conservatives have ever had sex in the entirety of human history right and we we know how we like popular culture and and things like that and it's like this is the the intellectual dark web is literally just a, a next version of this and but it, and that was the that was the the subject of of of, of brooks's book and and you wrote about it for Jacobin a, a while ago. Tell us about why why did why was that such an important topic for you guys what back when nobody had really cared about these people Sure. I mean, it was yeah, 2014, there's, there's, I guess, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so, well, Michael published his book, I think, and that was, it was published in 2020, I think just a month or so before, before his untimely passing. But I wrote in 2014 about kind of the new oh, yeah, I'm sorry, movement. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was in a, 
in a piece that's probably still one of my best, uh, my kind of most widely read pieces, I think I'd probably be somewhat embarrassed to read the prose now, but it, it having been a, about eight years ago, you, you change a lot as a writer in, in that uh, kind of span of time. But yeah, I mean, I think there was, there, there's some very obvious parallels between what calls itself the intellectual dark web and the new atheist movement, which I was, I found myself quite drawn to as a teenager in some ways. It, it was during the, during the Bush era, because there was a whole story about, I mean, the Bush, Bush got, Bush was aligned obviously with the evangelical right. And so he's, and he's really their kind of voice in the White House. And so there's really a feeling that when you're attacked, religion broadly defined, there's, there was something that was like encoded as, as liberal or progressive or, or transgressive is a word used about, about doing that. And in, in my 2014 essay, I looked at the, the many ways in which a lot of really quite grotesque and, and in some way, in some cases, bloodthirsty right-wing politics were really laundered through this, through these, uh, through these ideas and how even kind of quite people that exist in a kind of like liberal milieu, someone like Richard Dawkins, who's uh, famous for his writings about, you know, evolution and things like that would would adopt these these through this kind of prism of new atheism these uh, these really kind of chauvinist and and racist positions particularly though not exclusively toward towards muslims so i think within the united states there was also it also fit very much into a kind of uh, liberal conservative binary where there are liberals who really think of themselves as we're the smart ones we live on the coasts and in all the places that have the culture and religion is something for the primitives that live in the in the south and in the hinterland and things like that and so there was a certain kind of cla kind of class politics to it as well a kind of a kind of class chauvinism Michael's book took on the intellectual dark web which I, I believe the phrase was was introduced in that sort of lengthy New York Times piece a few years ago that was, I believe, written by Barry Weiss. I and mean, it introduced a number of these figures. Jordan Peterson was one of them, Ben Shapiro, mm -hmm. Joe Rogan, figures who, you know, in some cases anyway, are, I mean, are quite explicitly right-wing politics. I mean, if you don't think Ben Shapiro or, or Jordan Peterson are right-wing, I, I mean, that's, that's, it's it's hard hard to it's hard to continue the discussion, but but I mean, what was useful about that framing, and I think what was very flattering to this kind of group of people, is that it it really positioned them as these sort of I think non tribal thinkers was the was the phrase that was used in the in the piece, and of course, yeah, when you when you when you look at this this ecosystem insofar as there is one, it it really is. And Michael's book goes through different incarnations of it. There's kind of a chapter on on Jordan Peterson. There's one on Ben Shapiro, etc. And it, he shows how they all have kind of quite explicitly right wing and reactionary views of the world, but also how their 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 story, the story they tell about the world, uh, the stories they tell about the world really are kind of myths. They're they're fables. So they are Ben Shapiro, for example, has. Uh, this kind of ludicrous idea he's advanced in his book. I mean, it's an idea that would like you'd, you'd fail it if you submitted it as an undergraduate paper somewhere. This idea that the United States represents this perfect coming together of like the two competing strands in the Western philosophical tradition, Athens and, and Jerusalem. And so if, if you have any kind of knowledge of history or any sense of kind of if you've read if you've read Western philosophy at all, I mean, you know that this is just kind of made up but it's well and it's also uh sorry it's also a contradiction of the the narrative that american conservatives tell themselves which is that this is a judeo-christian country so like it's a complete rejection of the things that they actually tell themselves like they don't believe in a athens uh jerusalem fusion like they don't believe that they believe no this is this is a christian nation for christians and so all those homosexual Greeks can go fuck themselves. Uh, <laughs> like that's what I they mean, actually believe. 
I mean, this is one of the reasons why this style of the kind of intellectual dark web style of, of political argument is useful because a lot of it is not encoded for everybody as sort of right wing. Jordan Peterson, for example, the, the, where I hear him brought up most is I watch a lot of like YouTube, like fitness videos, like kind of like really muscly guys that tell you how to get jacked and that kind of thing. And a lot of those guys are really into Jordan Peterson and they, they don't even regard him as a political thinker in a lot of cases. Like he's not somebody, they, they see him more as like a self-help guy who kind of helps you sort out the chaotic world and, and kind of orient yourself more constructively towards it. And in Michael's book, as he, as he does kind of throughout, there's a chapter on Jordan Peterson where, you know, he, he really gets it how Jordan Peterson's project fundamentally is just the standard right-wing defense of, of hierarchy is something that's natural and organic. Inequality is something that is kind of an, an ineffable feature of human nature and is in some ways rooted in nature itself, that kind of thing. So uh, Michael, Michael was very good on those subjects, but I think also importantly, he was able to discuss them because he was himself able to discuss them effectively because he was himself kind of such a such an open-minded and intellectually generous and funny guy. And mm. when he died, Jacobin published, I think, a number of, there were so many kind of warm tributes that came in from just people who, you know, listened to his show. And what a lot of them said is that he actually kind of moved them to the left after they'd been immersed in right-wing YouTube and things like that. I mean, he was able, he represented the best of the left in that way. And that I think he was able to kind of speak to people who, who weren't, hadn't already kind of absorbed a lot of the, the, the usual, the usual beliefs or, or language or things like that. And I think, I think in many ways, that's Michael's most important legacy beyond anything that he actually wrote was just the kind of approach that he brought to uh, to his broadcasting and to his uh, to his writing. I think it's really invaluable. And I think one of the reasons I felt like dedicating the book to him was because I think that I think that the, the only way we're going to continue to build up the political left and kind of win more converts to it is by adopting something that like that like that approach. Yeah, well, and and to be willing to engage and to seek engagement, because I mean, the reality is that as much as these so-called self-proclaimed free thinkers, non-tribal thinkers, they don't actually want to debate anyone. Like they never have guests who disagree with them on their shows. Like if you're Brett Weinstein or Eric Weinstein, like they would die before <laughs> they would have someone on their show was like, well, you know what? Vaccines are good. And this nonsense about hydroxychloroquine, you can just throw it in the trash. And here's a hundred reasons why. Like they will never have these debates. But the thing is, like for a lot of people who are, especially who are young and just getting interested in politics, like they don't, they don't know that these people don't know anything. I mean, like the only people that Ben Shapiro can debate is 19 year old college freshmen. Like that's the caliber of his intellect. And so, and that's who he only wants to debate. Like he, he runs from debate with other people. And, and then the same, I mean, then Joe Rogan is willing to at least somewhat talk to people, it, it, but he still is afraid of people who he thinks are mean. So like he said that he thinks Sam Cedar is mean. And so he won't have him on his show. And, and like, but, but you have, so you have to point that out. If you have a, a, a leftist or a socialist or whatever you want to call yourself perspective, you need to, to say, look, the facts actually are on our side and I will discuss them with you, but don't, you can't respond by, if, if all you're going to do is troll, then, you know, that shows you have no confidence or intellect. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, I think, uh, 
leftists in general should be more comfortable debating debating right-wing interlocutors because we should be confident in our arguments. Our arguments, I think, by and large, are, are pretty good. I think in 2020, some point during coronavirus, I can't remember, I debated a libertarian on one of these kind of extremely broad socialism versus capitalism kind of debates. And he was, he was a nice guy. It wasn't a particularly hostile debate or anything like that. But I find that kind of exercise very useful. I, I think it helps you clarify your own ideas. And I, I, I also think it, it helps you instill for deeper, deepen your own confidence in your, in your own arguments and, and your ideas. And it certainly contributed to my feeling that kind of the libertarian analysis that he was doing is just uh, is just very flawed and it can't withstand uh, arguments and i think well we should we should try to avoid the tenor there is a tendency some people have an instinct to just i don't think you can treat everybody like a reasonable interlocutor so for example i don't think that there's any point there's no point debating fascist or something like that you're not going to find some sensible middle ground uh, with someone like that but people that have uh, people that have right-wing politics even if they're going to be very hostile to you like a ben shapiro or something i don't think their arguments can stand up to scrutiny and uh, that that's one of the reasons why, as you said, Ben Shapiro, a lot of his, uh, a lot of his appeal is that he, from a, an elevated platform on a stage with a microphone in his hand, will yeah yell at an 18-year-old college student or something like that, and that's uh, that's debate. He'll 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 inflict his incredibly tedious logic nerd bullshit on on whoever's in the crowd or whatever, and that's because that's because his arguments can't uh, can't stand up to scrutiny. Yeah, well, and but the, at the same time, there's a I can see why some people would feel like, well, I shouldn't have to debate my existence. So like if you're transgender. Yeah, or, absolutely. Like, and, and so for, but if that's, and, and that's a perfectly valid perspective, but at the same time, you, sh you do need to understand that like the way that the battle for same-sex marriage, marriage equality, that was won by having these debates, even though they, the, some people don't want to, to do them and you don't have to do them if you don't want to like, but for somebody who does want to do them, you shouldn't begrudge them for doing that. Like I, that's, that is one of the other subjects that we're going to be talking about on, on this show is that when you look at, I mean, you have to think about like the idea of, of same sex marriage, it, it was, it went from completely controversial, an offensive idea and it went to reality in so many countries across the globe in depending on overall let's say tw like 20 years that's a subject you should be studying <laughs> i think if you really want to be building change is is looking at how they did it and they did it by i mean obviously they had an, a, a huge advantage in that everybody knows at least someone who is you know gay or lesbian generally speaking sadistically but at the same time being able to tell a story and come you know come out of the closet and say look i'm a gay man i'm a lesbian woman i am a normal person i'm not i do not molest children you me you need to know that i'm normal and and i'm your friend and I, or i'm your family member or whatever like telling the story the personal aspect of it and showing people that all these lies that they had heard about them whether from their churches or political parties or whatever that they were lies and just having con having them confront their own experience and applying it to a broader perspective like that's how you do it yeah i don't think i have anything to add there but but certainly yeah all right well so i guess the other i guess before we wrap up here let's maybe just talk a little bit about 
Jack Ben, for those who are not familiar sure. with it. Like, so what is it and how, or, I guess that's where you're writing most of your stuff nowadays, right? You're a staff writer. That's right. And yeah, uh, the majority of the essays in the book were, were originally written for Jacobin. I should say there's also, there are, there are some original, there's original material in the book as well. Uh, there are essays that were published in uh, Current Affairs and, and The Atlantic also. So it's not all Jacobin essays, but yeah, by and large, most of the essays were, were originally written for, for Jacobin, where I've been working since, working since November of 2018, although I wrote my first Jacobin essay, I think 20, 2014. So I had, I, I was writing for them for, for a while. And yeah, I mean, Jacobin is the most successful socialist magazine. I think probably fair to say the most widely read socialist magazine in the English speaking world and, and the most successful thing of its kind for, for decades and, and decades, if not, not possibly ever, at least in an American context. It's, it also has a, a pretty extensive global network. There's a Jacobin Latin America, Jacobin Brazil, Jacobin Germany, Jacobin Italy. Uh, there's a Tribune, which is an older socialist publication in Britain, which has been, been kind of relaunched and is part of the wider Jacobin network. George Orwell, lots of famous people wrote for Tribune. It's, uh, it's very quickly built up a, an audience in, in the UK as well. And I may be forgetting some Jacobin affiliates. The point is there's quite a, there's quite a few of them, and and the essays are published in in English and and also in a whole uh, whole bunch of other languages. But yeah, broadly speaking, it's it's a kind of an ecumenical publication. Uh, a lot does publish a lot of academics, but also organizers and 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 students and activists as well. I think if I was to compare Jacobin to the kinds of magazines that I was reading when I was 14 or 15, I think there are a number of differences that are quite striking. When I was 14 or 15, uh, I read the magazine Adbusters a lot, which I'm not sure if people will remember that, but it was very sort of zine-like. It was, it was very dour. It had a lot of very sort of dark colors in it. Its politics, I think, were, were a little bit free-floating in some ways. I mean, it was, yeah, I suppose broadly sort of anti-establishment but and, and anti-corporate, but often I think it's kind of uh, a lot of the ideas that it was advocating were, were a little bit, in retrospect, incomplete to say the least. So we were going to do culture jamming. We were going to like have the Nike logo and have blood dripping from it and think, things like that. It was it was, it was kind of all over the map and 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 it, its sensibility, I think overall was, was just a little, it was quite, it felt quite pessimistic in some ways. And I think if you, know, if you open up a copy of Jacobin, one of the things, the first things you'll notice is how kind of vibrant the colors are and how, how kind of dynamic the design is. And while some people might say that there's no good aesthetics are distinct from good ideology, I do think there's a, I do think there's a relationship between these two things as far as Jacobin's concerned. I mean, I do think it, it has been one of the kind of main intellectual homes of this remarkable flourishing of, of, of democratic socialist ideas among people under under 40 and, and, and beyond as well, of course. It's, it's been, I think, the publication most closely aligned with Bernie Sanders in, in both of his presidential runs. I think we, we like to think of it as, as much more accessible than some left publications have traditionally been, while also able to be intellectually serious and, and kind of credible as a, as a media source, obviously. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, a place where it's kind of been my main home as a writer for the past several years. And it, it has, in some ways, kind of been the laboratory uh, in which I've kind of uh, workshopped a lot of my, my recent ideas about politics and, and kind of the, the themes that are, that are going to be in this, uh, in this book. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, jacobin.org, J-A-C-O-B-I-N.org for those who uh, haven't checked it out yet. And the other thing I guess also is that when you talked about it just for a sec is that the idea of bringing, so the, the weird thing about socialism or leftism in the 
I'd say the global context is that it's become heavily academicized and so largely inscrutable and out of touch with the average person, the people that they want to represent, but they can't speak to them in a <laughs> coherent fashion that doesn't involve verbal footnotes almost. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the consequences of the, I mean, one of the things that came out of the 1990s is you had political parties that at least had roots in the working classes of their countries, really quite aggressively moving away from, really moving towards, and especially true of the Democrats, right, moving towards a much more kind of affluent and, and suburban kind of a kind of constituency. And at the same time, you had traditional left-wing institutions like trade unions being being kind of battered, and uh, and also a lot of the the industries where there had been high levels of private sector union workers, in particular, were really in, in decline, particularly vis-a-vis -vis manufacturing. And as a result, you kind of come out of that period with all those developments I just mentioned, and and yeah, there is certainly a risk that you end up with a a left that is uh, much more sort of it skews towards a much more sort of mi middle class constituency than. And then, then the one it's trying to organize and, and be in solidarity with, where you have often times an overprofessionalized left. That's that's I'm not I'm not. This is not a criticism of nonprofits per se, but I think it, it's very much the case that we have a lot of nonprofits and kind of professional activism, which now kind of takes the place of a much more kind of organic and bottom-up style political activism and. And, and advocacy that 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 used to exist. All that's obviously a very kind of generalized statement. And one of the one of the challenges for, if we're talking about kind of millennial socialism and 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 things like that, one of the challenges is that. I, and I think this can be overstated. So I don't want to. I'm not. I don't want to lay this on too thick. But I think it's certainly a real phenomenon that you have a lot of younger people under, which is to say, people under forty who are downwardly mobile, they're not particularly well off, they're certainly not middle class in the sense that would have been understood 25, 30, 40 years ago. But you know, they have university degrees, they often live in major cities, that kind of thing. And so obviously, we need to build a, a left that, you know, has substantial constituencies outside of outside of that, we can't, we're not going to build a different kind of society, a better society, or even make progress within this current one in a meaningful way with, with just downwardly mobile, uh, economically anxious people under 40. I mean, this this kind of demographics is destiny idea that you alluded to earlier in response to the the coming Democratic majority book and how you say it was, it was misread. I mean, we, we, we absolutely can't count on uh, anything like that. We can't count on, can't just look at polls that show younger people to be politically progressive and, and hope that 10 years down the line, that's going to fix climate change, or that's going to take us towards a more equal society or, or anything like that. All of that is going to re organization, political education, advocacy, agitation. It's going to require a lot more disruptive political campaigns like the Sanders campaigns and like some of the campaigns they've inspired at the congressional level. It's going to take a lot more hard and fast victories in the political sphere, not not just waiting around for, for the kids to save us on, on TikTok or, or whatever it is. Yeah, well, no, I 100% agree. That's all great stuff. All right, well, I appreciate you being here today, Luke. Let me just put up the book one more time on the screen here. So it's The Dead Center. Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. Thanks for having me, and yeah, thanks for your interest in the book.
Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself. So you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.